Good morning, everyone. The Lord is good. It is the day in which we will serve and worship Him. I come before you in weakness, but He is our strength. Amen. Would you join me in prayer? Thank you, Father, for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for being in our midst. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Thank you for the promise and the hope of the resurrection. May your name be exalted and glorified. May your words, Father, come to our hearts. May you nourish our souls according to your will. We elevate our hearts to you, O Lord, and we honor you in the precious name of Messiah, Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. There are many things that really fascinate humanity, that truly intrigue us. For example, the metamorphosis of a butterfly, watching a caterpillar that looks nothing than just simply a fat worm with legs undergoing a fascinating transformation is something fascinating. It becomes a new creature. It's completely changed. A creature that somehow develops now designs or it develops wings and it's brand new with an ability to fly. And it looks gorgeous, but nothing like it used to look before. This has always been and it will always grab the attention of people, will grab the attention of the old and the young. Another fascination that does not escape human beings is the desire to live forever. Legends abound of the existence of the fountain of life. Our fairy tales often are filled with creatures like elves who never have to face death. The ultimate power of our superheroes is the ability to heal themselves or even to live forever. All of us, Christians and non-Christians, the old and the young, are obsessed with living forever. And why is this? Because this fascination stems from our longings, from within ourselves. All of humanity, deep down, wants to be miraculously changed into something beautiful, something new, something eternal. All of humanity desires to transcend in eternity. We long for our own metamorphosis. All of us long to live forever, to escape death, which is the enemy of us all. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul prophetically anticipates that Christ will defeat death. This takes place in verse 26. And he also introduces a better understanding of what has been known as the hope of Israel, the resurrection of the dead. Now in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul reveals the issue at stake in this chapter with the Corinthian church. The church at Corinth had some people within themselves battling against the foundational understanding of faith. They were denying the truthfulness of such an event known as the resurrection of the dead. So Paul writes, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is not, not such a thing as the resurrection 
of the dead. Christ's resurrection here is described as a resurrection from the dead, which itself is proved that there is such a thing as an event in the future known as the resurrection of the dead. This is why Paul can say in verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is futile and our faith is empty. In other words, if he did not rise from the dead, we have no business being here, worshiping, elevating our singing to the King of glory. This text show the following. The fact that Jesus, who is himself the Christ of God, the divine Messiah, who is himself a man, and as a man, he rose from the dead. Therefore, he provides the assurance that there will be a resurrection of the dead in the future. And we may ask, where did this understanding come from? The resurrection of dead people. God revealed it gradually. Under the Spirit's guidance now in the Corinthian epistle, Paul is enhancing in the understanding or enhancing the understanding of the resurrection, giving farther detail. The resurrection of the dead was already present in the book of Job, which is arguably the oldest book in the Bible, the oldest one. And we find in Job 19, 26, and these are the words of Job, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, Yet in my flesh I shall see God. How is it possible that after his skin has been destroyed, he can once again in the flesh see God? How can a man such a long time ago make that statement, if not by the Spirit of God? The resurrection of the dead had been the hope of Israel and is now presented by Paul as the hope of both Jew and Gentile alike in Christ. In the Lord. The prophet Daniel had anticipated this prophetically in the 12th chapter in the second verse. He wrote, Many of those who are asleep in the dusty ground will awake, some to everlasting life, and some others to everlasting abhorrence or contempt. Therefore, this resurrection of the dead is a twofold resurrection. There is one of which many will resurrect unto eternal life. Those who have placed their trust in the Messiah, in the King of glory that we were just singing about. But there will be also a resurrection of those who denied him in life. And they will be raised also, but to live in everlasting contempt. Pious people in Israel, godly Israelites also understood this in the first century. A good example of this is Mary, Lazarus' sister. If you remember in the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus, he intentionally waits longer while Lazarus is sick, and then Lazarus dies. And then he goes to the small town where the two sisters are, and he encounters first Martha. And then Martha comes to him and he says, Lord, if you had been here, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus replied, your brother will come back to life again. Martha said, I know that he will come back to life again in the resurrection at the last day. You see, she had an understanding of the resurrection in the last day, at the end, when all of those who are in the dust 
will rise. Paul himself had believed in the resurrection of the dead even before he encountered the Messiah. Because he was a Pharisee, and this was a foundational teaching among the Pharisees. In Acts 23, verses 6 through 8, he says that while he was before the Sanhedrin and before the high priest, it says that Paul noticed that part of those who were right there at the trial, who had brought him uh, to trial, were Sadducees and others were Pharisees. And so he shouted out to the council saying, brothers, I am a Pharisee. A son of Pharisees, I am on trial here concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, an argument began among the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Why? Because the Sadducees denied the resurrection of the dead. They denied that there was such a thing as angels or angelic beings. They denied the spiritual realm. But the Sadducees did not. And Paul did this. And something began, a great assembly division was stirred up at that point. So in our chapter, Paul himself, a Jew, also the main apostle who's teaching and preaching among the Gentiles, explains to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 20 to 22, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, of those who have died. For since death, since death came through a man, namely Adam, the resurrection of the dead also came through another man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Jesus' death and resurrection proves the existence of the resurrection from the dead. Paul mentions the first fruits, and this was an echo for many of those who were in the church. You see, historians are... Uh, are very uh, secure in stating that the Corinthian church had a great amount of Jewish people among them. And in fact, when you read the Corinthian epistle, you see constant references to Jewish feasts that God had established in Leviticus 23. For example, in 1 Corinthians 5, there is a mentioning of the Passover. And so it is understood that this letter would have been written during the Passover season because he says to them, you are a new lump, he says to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6. You, are, you have, made, have been made unleavened. God has taken your sins, therefore act in such a way, because Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. And immediately after that, he says, let us celebrate the feast. He is speaking in present tense. And so he's making a reference to the Passover. But what's interesting is that Passover was on the 14th of Nisan, according to Exodus 12. The lamb was sacrificed on that day. But the next feast during the week of Passover and unleavened bread, the next feast was a feast called First Fruits, in Hebrew, Bikurim. And it was to be celebrated on the 16th day of the month of Nisan. So what happens here is that he's making an echo once again to a feast in Israel. And he's saying Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrected ones. He also mentions another feast in the 16th chapter in verse 8. At the very end of the epistle, he mentions Pentecost. In Hebrew, Shavuot, this is the feast of the barley in gathering or the harvest, the feast of weeks, Pentecost. That in this, in this context, he is making an allusion to first fruits. And I want to read a portion 
uh, that explains the meaning of the feast that is very significant. First fruits, during the feast of first fruits, a sheaf of barley was harvested and brought to the temple as a thanksgiving offering to the Lord for the harvest. It was, a rep it was representative of a barley harvest as a whole and served as a pledge or guarantee that the remainder of the harvest would be realized in the days that followed. Served as a guarantee that a harvest would follow. What Paul is saying is that Jesus rose from the dead. He is the first fruits. Therefore, there will be a harvest of people who will be raised from the dead. Namely, those who have placed their faith in the Messiah, in Jesus, in our Savior. Jesus is God, and he's also a man. And as a man, Jesus is the first human being in history who has already experienced the resurrection. This is the resurrection unto life that Daniel the prophet spoke of. This is a resurrection that is marked by the transformation of the body into a state of immortality. Paul calls Jesus' resurrection the first fruits. Paul writes, in Christ we will be made alive. And so, why are the Corinthians questioning the resurrection? Like our dear pastor Steve says, I'm glad you ask. Some within the Corinthian church could, accept that, could not accept that dead bodies would be able to return to life and that souls will once again inhabit those bodies. They could not conceive an early body being able to enter a spiritual atmosphere either. As David Garland explains, they failed to comprehend how an earthly body that is physical and perishable can be made suitable for a heavenly realm that is spiritual and imperishable. And Paul's correction of some within the Corinthian church is emphatical. If Jesus did not rise from the dead completely in body and spirit, then Paul says we're still in our sins. But if Christ, in fact, was raised from the dead, then the future bodily resurrection of the dead is also a secure and completely reliable event. Church, if the dead will not rise bodily from the dead, then even the baptism of the body makes no sense. At this point, I come perhaps to the hardest text in the whole letter. And the Lord knows that I spend the whole week praying and asking the Lord what to say at this point. And... It is a difficult text. Let me tell you, more than 400 different interpretations have been given to this. It has been a text that confounded interpreters for centuries. It is quite a conundrum. And believe me, it has taken me hours and hours to just get behind it, asking the Lord, what in the world am I going to say? Well, what is the greatest difficulty of this text? There is no other biblical reference about the baptism of the dead in any other part of the text, in any other part of the Bible. It's an isolated passage. The overall argument of the text, of the text is clear. We're left with no detail, knowledge of the specifics. The word baptism means to be immersed. So what Paul perhaps is speaking of is a type of immersion 
on behalf of the dead or for the dead. Well, this type of immersion for the dead or on behalf of the dead assumes that there will be a resurrection from the dead. That is clear from the text. Paul is, is pointing out the absurdity also of this practice if those who practice it do it while denying the resurrection of the dead. So let me give you a couple of interpretations, one of which has been the plain reading of the text and many have taken for granted to be the one. Paul is here identifying the practice of vicarious baptism for dead persons. In other words, what he's doing is that there is a baptism that was happening on behalf of dead people, somehow infusing some sort of grace on those people who have died. But this is problematic because this contradicts all the writings of Paul and all of the Pauline theology in the scriptures. It contradicts the Bible in general. Because we find a text like Hebrews 9.27 that says, For it is appointed unto all men to die only once, and then judgment. So if, there, if people die only once and then judgment, there is no other alternative. There's nothing more that could be done after death. Now there is a second interpretation, which I believe it makes a bit more sense in this case. This view explains that the term the dead is a metaphor for the condition of believers who receive baptism. Then the phrase on behalf of the dead is not referring to some kind of third party, or through, but is actually referring to the subject, the people who are being baptized, namely those who are being baptized. And it could be paraphrased in this way. Otherwise, what do those hope to achieve who are baptized for their dying bodies? If the completely dead are not raised, why then are they baptized for themselves as corpses? This was the unanimous view of the Greek fathers who argued that the dead were the bodies. Let us remember something, and this is why I actually started embracing this. Paul interprets baptism often throughout his letters as a symbol of death and resurrection. And the dead characterizes the person's condition before baptism. So a, a key text to understand this is Romans 8.10. Romans 8.10 says, but if Christ, or if Christ is in you, your body is dead. Now, take into account, he's talking to people who are living. He's not talking to the dead. And yet he says, if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is alive because of righteousness. So if the problem was that the Corinthians assumed the inherent mortality of the soul, an eternity of this embodied spiritual form. In other words, if they were actually following the understanding of the Greek philosophers of the time, of the pre-Gnostics that would develop during the second century, they would have actually thought of everything physical or bodily as something intrinsically sinful. And something spiritual or everything that's spiritual is something to be attained or to be looking for. But that, not, that is not Pauline theology nor is biblical theology. Then Paul then is addressing their issue by providing from his own Jewish perspective the understanding that the dead, namely their current earthly bodies, 
are being also baptized or immersed because those bodies will be raised in the end. The importance of bodily realities has always been a Jewish understanding, opposite to the Greek philosophical understanding that prevailed during the Corinthian period. This point then is made to communicate to the whole human person or that the whole human person will be raised in the end, soul and body, not just the spirit. The resurrection of the dead is not simply an understanding that in the end our spirits will be in a spiritual sense in eternity with God. No, the resurrection of the dead is the fact that the soul and the spirit will return to the body and the body will be raised. This is the understanding. Paul uses similar language in Romans 6, 3 to 13. He says, Or do you not know that as many who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may be made a new life. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe also that we will live with him. So if this is the correct interpretation, then Paul is telling the Corinthians this. And let me just say it this way. The bottom line is this. You ready? If the dead will not rise to life completely in the body and in the soul, then what is the point of baptizing your bodies when you're being baptized or immersed in water now? If, in fact, the bodies will not rise, if they will stay in the dust for the rest of eternity. Let's move to the second point at this, uh, at this juncture. Uh, church, if the dead do not rise, then living a life for Christ is meaningless. If the dead do not rise, living a life for Christ is meaningless. This is what Paul says in verse 30, 31, and 32. Why, too, are we then in danger every hour? Every day I'm in danger of death. This is a sure thing, and this is my boasting in you. What he's saying is, I risk my life every time. I risk my life every time for the sake of the gospel. And if Christ did not rise from the dead, then why am I doing this? For what purpose is what he's saying? If from a human point of view, he says, I fought wild beasts in Ephesus. In Ephesus. He's saying in Ephesus, he encountered people who actually wanted to kill him for, because of the gospel. He risked his life. And so he says, what I did, did it benefit me in any way? Did, did, did it bring me any benefit if the dead are not, do not rise from the dead? If not, then let us eat and drink and tomorrow we die. He points, out, he points out that all that all he does, that every effort he puts forward is because he holds on to the hope of the resurrection of the dead. If there is no resurrection of the dead, all of his apostolic suffering is for no purpose. In 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 27, he gives a list of his sufferings. Just get a taste of this. So you think of the great prize that he had paid. He says, are they servants of Christ? Speaking of other apostles, I am even more so. 
with much greater labors, with far more imprisonments, with more severe beatings, facing death many times. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with a rod. Once I received a stoning. Three times I received shipwreck. A night and a day I spent adrift in the open sea. And I have been on journeys many times in dangers from rivers, in dangers from robbers, from my own countrymen, from Gentiles, in dangers in the city, in the wilderness, at the sea, and among false brothers. And so, if there were no resurrection of the dead, then Paul foolishly risked his life, and he did it for no purpose. So, if we're living a life given to Christ, if we go on mission, if we share the gospel, if we made an effort in, uh, to some extent to give glory to Christ and to extend the mission of the, uh, of the Great Commission by preaching Christ, we're wasting our time if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if he places his trust, speaking of Paul, in something that is completely false, or you and I are placing our trust in something that is completely false, then it would have been better for him or for us to have never began being Christians or following Jesus. But Christ rose. Verse 30. This, the resurrection, is as sure, he says, as my boasting in you, which I have in Christ the Lord. This is what Paul says, I boast in you. I invested in you. You are a church that I care about. And, I, and as sure as I boast in you because I care of you, I assure you there is a resurrection of the dead. If from a human point of view I fought with wild beasts, he said in Ephesus, what did it benefit me for? Let us drink then because tomorrow we will die if the dead do not rise. Paul does everything with the expectation of the future resurrection. If there's the resurrection of the dead, then let's eat, drink, get married, live because life is short and nothing else matters. But what he's saying here is that nothing more than life on this earth. There is no, if there's no resurrection of the dead, why should we suffer voluntarily? Why should we put any effort for the sake of the gospel, let us drink. Because tomorrow we'll die. There's nothing else right after. Church, because the resurrection of the dead will in fact take place, we should live ethical lives. We should strive in the Spirit's power to live in obedience to Christ. Paul now gives warnings as he continues. And he uses an imperative phrase. He says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. The Corinthian believers associated with people who were scoffing the, no the notion of the resurrection. They, they made fun of it. And he's saying, listen, they are being a stumbling block to you. Do not associate with those who are drifting you away from the faith. He says, sober up as you should. And stop sinning, he says to them. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. Think about this. When you think of the Corinthian epistle, there's a constant, constant 
admonition. There's a constant correction from the very beginning. Chapter 1 and 2, he's telling the Corinthians, there's divisions among you. Some of you say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Christ. And some were actually uh, inflated, puffed up about their knowledge. And he has to tell them that he himself does not rely on his own knowledge or in, on his rhetoric when he preaches. He relies on Christ. He goes on, and in 1 Corinthians, for example, in 1 Corinthians 5, he mentions a man who is living in an incestuous relationship with his, with his stepmom. So you find a church that, that has been praised at the very beginning, at the end of the, of, the, of the 16th chapter, for being a church that abounds in the gifts of the Spirit, but also a church that was entrenched in sin. Chapter 6, he has to tell them, stop sexual immorality, stop seeking after prostitution and other things. Don't you know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? 1 Corinthians 6, 18 and 19. So he has to tell them so many things because they were entrenched in immorality. Look at chapter 11, the chapter that we read when we take the Lord's Supper. He has to tell them, why do you gather when you celebrate the Lord's Supper and you have a huge feast and some of you eat more, some eat less, and then you even get drunk in the midst of it. He says, you should take care of being mindful when you take the Lord's Supper. You must take it in a, in a worthy manner. And he says, because you have not done so, many of you have fallen asleep. Many of you have died. So the church has gone through a series of sins, and yet God's grace was among them. But he has to tell them, stop sinning. Stop sinning. Because this just simply shows that you do not know God. And I say this to your shame. The lack of belief in the resurrection had led them to live in lewdness and immorality. David Garland said this, The resurrection means endless hope, but no resurrection of the dead means hopeless end. And hopelessness breeds dissipation. C.K. Barrett also comments and says, Take away the resurrection... And moral standards collapse. A cynical fatalism toward life encourages life to try to go to the gusto. To have it all now. To amuse themselves endlessly. If life ends at death, why not live it up? Paul quotes Isaiah 22 verse 13. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow will die then. If that is the case. Barrett said if the Christian hope is taken away. Not only will any motive for a person to endure suffering for Christ be crushed, but also any moral standard will be destroyed. Family, what I'm about to say is not news to you. The collapse of moral standards is the reality of our society today. All we have to do is turn on the news and watch what's happening. Judeo-Christian values are confronted daily. Christi oh, children in our schools are being pushed to defy biblical values. What was once considered shameful and immoral is now not only accepted, but rather promoted and praised. And lately, I would even say forced upon people. What is good in God's eyes, according to Scripture, is now called evil. 
intolerant, hateful, and dangerous. Isaiah prophesied about this. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, he said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Church family, our bodies will be raised from the dead. And they will be transformed. Verse 35, verse 41. Paul says, but if someone will say then, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? You fool, says Paul. What you sow will not come to life unless it dies first. And what you sow is not the body that it's to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. Think of Jesus' body at the resurrection for a moment. What happened when Mary went to the tomb? Mary saw a man who happened to be Jesus, but he, she didn't recognize him. She thought it was a gardener. She said, Lord, tell me if you have put him somewhere. If you have put my Lord somewhere, would you please let me know? And he has to actually reveal himself to her and said, Mary, it's me. She says, Rabboni, my rabbi, my Lord, and she clings to him. When Jesus was on the road to Emmaus with the two, he walked with them for a while. I've been on the road to Emmaus. It takes more than 10 minutes, okay? And, and you're there walking, and he's explaining, he's opening the scriptures to them. But they did not realize it was Jesus, even though they were disciples, not of the 12, but of the greater group. And it was only when he entered the home and broke bread that they realized that it was the Lord. And at that point, he disappeared. So was it the same Lord, the same body? It was the same body, but it was a body that was changed. Because it's not exactly the same as a body that is transformed. He was able to appear suddenly, Luke 24, even in rooms with locked doors, John 20, 19, and to vanish just as quickly, Luke 24, verse 31. He was able to break bread and eat fish. He ate after he resurrected with his new body. His body will, will still bear the marks of his suffering when he comes back. Can you think of this? This really grips me. Right now, as we speak, there is a human being sitting at the right hand of God the Father, who is also God. This human being is a descendant of Abraham through the line of Judah, a descendant of David, and he bears the markings right now sitting at the right hand of the Father. We will see him again. Zechariah chapter 12 says that the Jewish people, those who will see him when he returns, they will ask him, why are those marks in your hands? And he will say to them, I was pierced by my brothers. And they will weep and mourn and repent. So Paul continues in verse 38. But God gives it a body just as he planned. And to each one, the seed body of its own. All flesh is not the same. People have one flesh. Animals have another type of flesh, meaning another type of body. Fish have another type of body. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. So Paul is just making an argument saying, 
listen, there are different types of bodies, and the body that it's to be will be changed, but the kernel, the seed, is the body that you have now. And it will resemble, it will resemble marks of the body that we have now. It will only be glorified and changed. We will not decay. We will not have to face death. Can you think of that? It's a beautiful promise. Jesus used the same seed sowing analogy in John 12, 34. When he says, I'll tell you a solemn truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Much grain. Then Paul continues in verses 42 to 49. It is the same with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, meaning it dies. But what is raised is imperishable. It's immortal. It's transformed. It is sown in dishonor and it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness and it is raised in power. This verse really takes me. You know, almost a month ago, three to four weeks ago, my sister, my youngest sister, who's only 35, the age of my wife, she was pregnant with her baby of three months, and she lost her baby. The whole family was in shock. You could ask my wife. We didn't know what to, what to do, what to say to her. I couldn't call her in weeks because... I knew she was mourning with her husband, and so were we. My kids were weeping because they knew it was a little cousin, a boy. But it says here that those who will be sown in weakness will be raised in power. That little baby will be raised, and we will meet him one day. This is what David said when he had the first son with Bathsheba that died. He said, I cannot do anything. He's already gone. I will go to him, but he cannot come back to me. Well, in this case, it's different. I mean, we will go to him if we happen to die. But if the resurrection takes place, we will see him rising and coming back. This is what, listen, th this is why in 1 Thessalonians chapter 13 through 17, we find such great hope. Paul says in that text, he says, this, I don't want you brothers to be ignorant about this. That if you believe that Christ, that Jesus died and rose from the dead, also with him he will bring those who have fallen asleep. Meaning those who have died he will bring with him. And he says, so when you mourn, if you're mourning for those who you have lost, don't mourn without hope. We, we mourn, yes, but we mourn with hope knowing that we will meet them again. And in the flesh... Not just in this embodied condition and in the spirit, in the flesh. Richard Pratt said this, It is best to understand when he says here the spirit, that a spiritual body will be raised. It's best to understand spiritual, not as an immaterial body, but rather a reference to the Holy Spirit. In other words, believers' resurrected bodies will be spiritual because they will be renewed by the Holy Spirit. They will be raised by the Spirit of God, just like the body of Christ was raised by the Spirit of God. So family, our mortal bodies are perishable, but resurrected bodies will be imperishable. 
Mortal bodies will be subject to illness and death, and still are, but resurrected bodies will not experience sickness. Mortal bodies carry dishonor, but resurrected bodies carry glory. Since Adam's fall into sin, all human beings have been born into a dishonorable existence because of sin, because sin has corrupted our bodies. Resurrected bodies, however, will be glorious, splendid, incorruptible. So the last verse, as Paul says in verse 45 and on, so also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living person. The last Adam became a life-given spirit. Adam's life depended upon God. This is why God could actually make the death penalty for sin. In Genesis 2:17, we read, You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when the day you eat of it, you will surely die. But the last Adam, Jesus, is a life-given spirit. He has life in himself because he is not only Adam, meaning a man, but he is also God. And he gives life to whom he desires. Verse 46, and on, however, the spiritual did not come first, but the natural. Paul continues this argument. Then the spiritual, the first man is from the earth and of the dust, the second man is from heaven. And so he goes on with the same understanding saying that we will resemble the body of Christ. Verse 49, and just as we have borne the image of the men of dust, meaning Adam, our forefather, let us also bear the image of the men of heaven, Jesus the Messiah. Family, the resurrection of the dead for believers entails transformation into immortality, glorification, it will resemble not the current, the, cur the current state, but a state of, of marvelous transformation in the future. We will be like him, like our Messiah, like Christ. Philippians 3, chapter 20 says this, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we also await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform this humble bodies of ours into the likeness of his glorious body by means of the power by which he is able to subject all things to himself. So in the end, this is what we gathered. Those inner longings that I spoke about at the beginning that everyone has that we see reflected with our movies, with uh, the fantasy books that we read. Those inner longings and desires are not too far-fetched after all. If we are in Christ, we will experience the resurrection, that which our heart desires. We will experience eternal life, even in a bodily form. Let me close with the words of C.S. Lewis in The Weights of Glory and Other Addresses. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an 
ignorant child who wants to go and make in mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Would you pray with me? Father, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God of our Lord Jesus Christ, allow us, O oh Father, to live our lives in such a way, embracing the hope of the resurrection because Christ rose from the dead so we can be sure that we too will be raised, that our family members will be raised, that our bodies will be raised in the end, changed, transformed to resemble the body of Christ the Lord who will return in bodily form as well. Father, allow us to hold fast to that hope and may that hope permeate our walk with you that we may live lives with a zeal for your glory. We praise you, O Lord. In our weakness, we praise you. We know that we depend upon your Holy Spirit and we depend upon you and we thank you for that. Take hold of us, Father, until the day in which we will see the resurrection of the dead. We praise you in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.